Try to f- fight that as best we can. No, it won't. It won't transfer on the mics. Oh, good. It'll sound crisp. Oh, good. Sound crisp. Crisp. So yeah, Cooper picked our book this time. Yeah, Coop? yeah. We read uh, uh, "Between the World and Me" by uh, Tanahisi Coates. It was published in 2015, uh, and it's structured as like a three-part uh, epistolary. Uh, styled nonfiction story. Um, the setup being it's uh, a letter that he wrote to his 15-year-old son, I believe, after the Michael Brown conviction, or the lack thereof. Um, that's at least how the story begins, and that's sort of what prompted him to sit down and write this letter to his son. Uh, Samore. If I'm Yeah, Samore right. is his son's name. Yeah. Uh, and he, he begins the... He begins the story with a uh, Richard Wright poem that uh, gives us the name of this this book. I'm just going to read it real quick just to get us all started. Uh, and one morning while in the woods, I stumbled suddenly upon the thing, stumbled upon it in a grassy clearing guarded by scaly oaks and elms, and the sooty details of the scene rose, thrusting themselves between the world and me. Richard Wright. Who I believe was a South African author who wrote uh, The Outsiders? Do I have that right? What? What? Sonia Sanchez? Yeah. No. No, no, Richard Wright. Richard Wright didn't write The Outsiders. What did he write? He wrote Native Son. That's what I was thinking of. Next time that happens, just correct me and not ram it down my throat how wrong I was. Maybe we can start there on our inaugural podcast of 2020. We talked about this, Phil. Um, well, I got $15,000 to be a master of English, so... <laughs> so, so you're using it right. You're doing, you're doing a, a, good, a good service. Yes, I'm, uh, um, but yeah, I'm proselytizing. I, this story, right, it, it was set off by uh, his, his son and him... Uh, watching the Michael Brown case, right? Among among many That's many r- uh, others. Yeah, the son was uh, really upset when that came down. Right, I, I have that it right decision, here. Right. Uh, I write you in your fifteenth year. Uh, the you being his son. I'm writing you because this was the year you saw Eric Gardner choked to death for selling cigarettes. Because now you know that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help that John Crawford was shot down for browsing at a department store, and you have seen men in uniform drive by and murder Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child whom they were oath-bound to protect, and you have seen men in the same uniforms pummel Marlene Pinnock, someone's grandmother on the side of a road, and you now know, if you did not before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. Uh, which, 
uh, coincidentally, uh, not intentional, but that's sort of uh, the premise of the of the whole rest of the story, right? Is this discussion on black bodies? He, he yes. returns to that time and time again. I had a nice little versus in the book. It was black bodies versus the idea of whiteness. Because that's Ooh. like another really important thing he talks about. Yes. Well, Wait, it, it's not whiteness per to? se, right? It's the, it's the need uh, to be white. The need to be white? Is that what you said? Well, anytime, because he'll, when he contrasts, like anytime he talks about, uh, quote, white people, he, he always clarifies, he always says like, the people who need to be white are the people who feel they must be white. Who think themselves to be white. Who think themselves right. to be white. Yes, yes, yes. Because that sort of gets to this idea that he also returns to it with whiteness in America, which are like dreamers, right? People who are asleep yes. or dreaming in reference to the American dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, those that hold most strongly to it, uh, to the dream, are the ones that are feel the need to uh, assert and, and be within their whiteness which is in stark contrast to the black bodies that make up the rest of the country. Right. But it's fine. I mean, I, I, I would think these people who feel they must be white would be the same kind of people who would say things like, oh, I just don't see color. <laughs> wait, 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 That's wait. Right. What was that? I missed it. I feel, I, I feel like, you know, the people like that he's talking about, the people lost in the American dream who feel they must be white or, you know, well, he, he uses a few variations on that thing. They're like the these are the exact same people who would say like oh I I just race doesn't exist for me I just don't see color, right right right, yes. aren't we all the human race aren't we all part of the human race? We are all indigenous to the earth. <laughs> yes yes. Well, he he touches on that same idea when he talks about those same kinds of people who think that when all the black and white people mix in this some. Um, brown race then everything will be fine but like he explicitly says that's not the problem the problem is much deeper than that and that's not going to go away if everyone's just brown because like light-skinned black people are obviously terrorized yes um because another another setup to the story uh is is um the interview he had right where he was uh, asked by the by the host, specifically the host wished to know why I felt the white America's progress, or rather the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. Uh, so it, it, and he again touches on this later in the book numerous times, but this burden that him and his black brothers and sisters are feeling, which is they're made to explain the inherent violence in American history. Like it's their burden that they will always have to bear, which he then returns to again in the closing of the story when he tells his son, and uh, not uh, so optimistically says, like, I don't have a solution. This is your burden now. Um, and I wish I had a better answer for you. Well, and we end, too, with the... It's, almost, it's kind of interesting. He sets it up like a coach. We end, too, with the this sort of journalistic thing that he does. I, I, with I, don't, I, an old I can't hear any. Is somebody speaking right now? Uh, Phil, I can't hear you on here as well. I was just hoping you guys could hear him. No, uh, uh-uh. I just I was nodding hear in the darkness of the Hello? studio. Hello, checky check check. Nothing. Hello, it, I, can it's, hear I can hear you, but it's I, I can't make out anything you're saying. It's like you're like a 
thousand yards away from the microphone. Oh. <coughs> One second. Damn it. Well, while he's doing that, there was something I wanted to say. Uh, yes, please. About you were talking. So, what was it? It was. Let me see if I can bring it back. It was something to do about um, how their race. How he does a really good job of bridging this divide between race being a construct that is not legitimate and not real, and but at the same time understanding that they're not. They're what was there's a good quote here. I, I don't have it, but that they're they're a race in so far as they're united by their. Um, shared uh, oppression um and i remember there was this really great essay by bell hooks called postmodern blackness that talks about how postmodernism says everything is a construct and uh everything is you know not real and, and everything's about theory and bell hooks's perspective is that you know that's easy for you to say um and that it's easy for you to say if you're white and privileged but like as a black person you can't really function in that realm and um, this idea, uh, sorry, there's lots of stuff going on. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can focus. Yeah. Well, I keep hearing an echo here. Um, postmodern? Um, yeah, just basically that the people are united. It's just on page 119. I'll just read it right here. Um, but by then I knew that I wasn't so much bound to a biological race as to a group of people. And these people were not black because of any uniform color or any uniform physical feature. They were bound because they suffered under the weight of the dream. And they were bound by all the beautiful things, all the language and mannerisms, all the food and music, all the literature and philosophy, all the common language that they fashioned like diamonds under the weight of the dream. So their identity is still real and their race is still real insofar as there are people united as like, that which is not white oh that's not even true because there's brown people and other types of people but no but there's an inter there that's an important distinction there's a binary between white and not white i think ultimately yes yeah i think so in the larger picture of, of american culture yeah um i guess since we're talking about all, all this race stuff already should we do a disclaimer about being for white dudes or is is that enough for me just to mention that we recognize that we are for white dudes with a good amount of privilege and we chose this book because it seemed relevant to to what's going on um, even more today. It's five years old, but it's um, uh, yeah even more relevant now. So yeah, uh, we just picked it and we thought we'd discuss it as um, more just like a piece of literature and to be careful about our commentary about race, I guess. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, as we recognize we that there are definitely, yeah, as best we can. Uh, I guess it's helpful for us, like as we hopefully get onto a track and maybe do more, um, controversial books. Like if people are listening and they think that we mishandle a topic, uh, let us know. Like, I guess you can hit us up on waste division at waste division on, uh, Instagram. That would be a way. Um, but yeah, anyway, just to kind of mention that. Oh yeah. I think it's important. I mean, I definitely, while reading this, while I could empathize and, 
and recognize the anger that Ta-Nehisi Coates has throughout the story, uh, I mean, I, I could never place myself within it. Uh, I couldn't ever, like, fully um, see myself in his place, which was totally. hard, right? As a reader, that's all I ever want to do is empathize with the characters and the story I'm reading. And I know that I'm, like, I just use, like, a, like a fictional term for This is nonfiction. This is very much, like, a story of his life, and it's incredibly personal. Um, but even there, I still want to, like, embody uh, who I'm reading about, but it, it's hard to do that when their yeah. story is so, so vastly different than my own personal experiences. Cause yeah. I, I'll, I'll admit we some have selfishness in choosing this book because I have a little son, you know. Um, but even there, I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll certainly have uh, conversations it's with It's not race. really the same. No, no, by, yeah. no, by no means. I mean, he's, he's having to tell his son that yeah. his body is not his own and, and can be taken from him violently at any moment with little to no repercussions. I mean, yeah. that is a heavy, heavy lesson. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that Cooper too. I was hanging out with a couple junkie dudes at my friend's house last night. He was just sort of putting them up. Um, and so I guess they've been off the stuff for a second, but one of them was going to treatment anyway, pretty soon. Um, talked about, well, one of them was a black dude talked about how he had been, he had a gun pointed at him eight times, um, growing, I think in his life or maybe 12 and that didn't include how many times cops pointed a gun at him. And he had a gun pointed at him when he was eight by a cop at one point. So, like, hearing about his stories and being like, oh, damn. Like, that is so different. Um, I was talking with my buddy who's also white, and we were like, man, that shit is intense. And, like, you want to hear about it, but we have to be careful about, like... Uh, not fetishizing the grief, I guess, around this or totally. like the violence mm-hmm. as well. Um, and like at once it's important to absorb the experiences and like see what we can glean and understand through this story, but also not go too far to the extent that we say like, we completely understand the problem. Like right. even to to the extent that we're like, we don't see color anymore. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Mr. Coates. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I'll be the first to admit that I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm so far removed from, from this experience that all I can do is just try my best and read as much as I can. Um, I did want to say there's a theme with this sort of commentary that... Let's see if I can... I had it marked somewhere. Well, the idea being that, like, I think what's important about this sort of story is that it outlines lots of dynamics that are not unique to black folks, though, or at least um, they are easily exported to different other demographics. Like, I mean, for one thing, let's see, like Native Americans can understand a lot in in a sense about like kind of being erased some way mm, uh disposable yeah and i think that's important for for stuff like solidarity um it's also important cuz i have this idea that like these constrictive aspects of culture 
that come down in like a racial way eventually start to bleed out from that and kind of encroach upon more protected aspects of the culture. Like um, the sorts of processes that we see black people subjected to make it so that it's very easy to do it to everybody. Like no matter your race or your class eventually. And I understand that I I don't want to collapse that too much, but there's something about like people doing a clarion call about what has happened to humans already under things like capitalism and being like, Hey, yo, like this shit can get really intense and you might want to pay attention because it doesn't seem to care what it attacks. Like it does. And it doesn't right. Like there are easier ways. Turns out race is a pretty easy way to sort humans and decide which ones you want to dehumanize or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a long rant kind of, but I'm pretty high. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> well, that sort of touches on um, uh, Jordan linked us to uh, an article in The Guardian that um, uh, Cornell West wrote, uh, sort of uh, criticizing Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I use that term because that's just what it is, but it has no... Uh, like negative connotations to it, which he points out in the article. Like this isn't like a gotcha. He he just wrote it simply to point out that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' current political um, positions tend to be more neoliberalism than what he would like to see, which is like all-inclusive, right? Talking more actually about class and power structures and Wall Street and greed and including things like LGBTQ, Q plus um, into the umbrella of like black liberation, which is sort of right up your guys's alley. I mean, I, I'm a avid, avid free market capitalist, but I know you guys have your qualms with it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if Reagan was here, everything would just be smooth as silk. (laughs) Because it's, we get Reagan up like Tupac. <laughs> yeah, Coachella. Jesus Christ. That'd be sick. That's like one of the oldest <laughs> references I've made in a long time, I think. Remember when that happened? Coachella? <laughs> Tupac? Hardly knew her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I implore everybody who who's uh, interested or has read this before to read this article because um it's it's Cornell West and I, I love reading anything that he's that he writes. But What's the title of that? Do you, somebody have it handy? Todd Hesey Coates is the neoliberal face of the black freedom struggle. Um, I think the most important part of that article, and it, it's important to say that. Oh my God! Why is it echoing so badly? It's not for me. You threw your headphones out. That's true. The important part of that. Well, I can't hear if anyone's saying anything. So sorry if I'm talking over you. But the important part of that article was to convey, well, two things. That was not in in a response to the book that we're reading. No. So part of me regretted even posting that, um, for that reason. But I think really what Co- what uh, Cornell West was trying to get at was that he's not really giving us any solutions Coates isn't um and I think that's true in this book he's just sort of calling out how I guess dominant white culture is and I think one of the points 
that West makes is he makes white culture into this monolith that cannot be beaten and that white and black people are just basically internal, not internal, uh, permanent punching bags for, for white dominant civilization. And that may be true, but he doesn't really have the capacity to implement some sort of a, a plan to, to work out of that, uh, I guess, snake pit that black people have found themselves in, um, which would mean calling out class, which would mean not being, <laughs> probably not being a number one New York Times bestseller. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I think that's key to point out, um, just because I actually thought that was, for me, the, one of the most powerful um, aspects of the book was that there were no answers, that it uh, it was a very sort of dark uh, story, uh, one, of, one of his life and in, in the life of um, um, black and white, in, being black and white in America. Um, so yes, like, I have it right here. So he's in, in this piece, if we're going to keep on with the Cornell West piece, I think it is I- I- important. He's talking about uh, Ta-Nehisi's coat, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power, uh, which, is a, which was a book he wrote about Barack Obama's presidency, um, along with the tenacity of white supremacy. Uh, and in it, so he's, he's criticizing his, his continued inability to give solutions to this problem, um, which is, I, I, I haven't read that much else by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I have read, he wrote uh, uh, several Black Panther comic books, which were phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's tight. Oh, yeah, well, they were great. And just this is the last thing I would like to say about it. I mean, you guys can talk about this more, but um, he, I really like the Frankfurt School, and they're really famous for not really giving solutions, but just calling out just how terrible everything is and just saying everything is fucked. And I love that. So it maybe is a little hypocritical for me to call out Coates, but maybe the key difference is Coates just lionizes Obama to such an extent and I understand that in comparison to most presidents, Obama's a pretty fucking cool guy, but he still was towing the party line. He was towing the neoliberal line. He was towing the imperialistic line for eight years and didn't really do much to curb it. Um, and I think that's really what Cornell West's main issue was. And for Coates's real, real glory, glorification of this man to be one of the best solutions, I think was trying to, I don't know, sell a book. Right. Yeah, he he certainly was uh, not as critical of Obama as I know a lot of people probably would have liked him to have been. Um, Especially because in in the book Between the World and Me, he brings up, he does talk a lot about America as an imperialistic force and, and sort of the pain that we've wrought globally. And and that's like hard to exclude Obama from that conversation. Oh yeah, just based on you know the amount of countries. I, that I love my drones. I, I like to take those and, drones and, out and, and all that stuff that we're well aware of. Go for a you wedding. Know, the deportation, the mass deportation of more people than any other sitting president. All the sort of talking points that we are familiar with when it comes to critiquing President uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Did you guys not like my Obama impression? I liked it, hey. too. Oh, Cooper can't hear me still. Cooper? 
Oh, well. We okay. lost a brother? That's strange. Cooper, can you hear us? Maybe we lost him. Uh, I haven't said um, anything Dan. yet, so can I can I say something really fast? I want uh, yeah, I was going to ask you to say more. Um, well, I, I have less to say about um um the climate around the book or, or you know what what he should have said or did, maybe didn't say um just about i don't know i found reading it i was struck by how he 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 he's not very spiritual at all in fact he he there's not a lot of like oh black people magic type of uh like sentiment like you see like i guess what i mean by this is he uses in material terms a lot um yeah uh, which I, I, I'm sure you, Phil, uh, appreciated a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I've i been trying to find this in the book because I have it on Kindle, so it's it's not as easy for me to find the page. But I had in a note written there was something on page 71. Um, I, my, my note just says material terms, black bodies, bodies turned into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. And I I, I had hopes of reading something on that. Um, one seventy one. Uh, just seventy one. Oh yeah. Um, here, I think I have it actually. Here, uh, if I could read a section to just kind of show the material, please. Uh, okay. So here is what I would like for you to know in America: It is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. Enslavement was not merely the antiseptic borrowing of labor. It is not so easy to get a human being to commit their body uh, against its own elemental interest. And so enslavement must be casual wrath and random manglings, the gnashing, the gashing of heads and brains blown out over the river as the body seeks to escape. It must be rape so regular as to be industrial. There is no uplifting way to say this. I have no praise anthems nor old Negro rituals. The spirit and soul are the body and brain which are destructible. That is precisely why they are so precious, and the soul did not escape. The spirit did not steal away on gospel wings. The soul was the body that fed the tobacco... And the spirit was the blood that watered the cotton, and these created the first fruits of the American garden. And the fruits were secured through the bashing of children with stove wood, through hot iron peeling skin away like husk from corn. It had to be blood. It had to be nails driven through tongue and ears pruned away. Uh, Some disobedience, wrote a southern mistress. Much idleness, sullenness, slovenliness used the rod. It had to be a thrashing of kitchen hands for the crime of churning butter at a leisurely clip. It had to be some uh, woman cheered with 30 lashes Saturday last and as many more a Tuesday again. It could only be the employment of carriage whips, tongs, iron pokers, handsaws, stones, paperweights, or whatever might be handy to break the black body, the black family, the black community, the black nation. The bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance. And the bodies were an aspiration, lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife, or a summer home in the mountains. For the men who needed to believe themselves white, the bodies were the key to a social club, and the right to break the bodies was the mark of civilization. Damn, nice. I forgot. Yeah, how, I, mean, yeah, I wanted to bring so that good. one up, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's an excellent writer. I mean, that's one thing you can't... We, we haven't really talked about that. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I, I was kind of reading, I was reading on, like, political forums, even some, like, far-right ones, um, or literature ones that tend to be towards the right talking about this book, and that, it seems to be universally, the universal opinion is that um, this guy can write very, very well. 
That's it's so interesting that there we, we we are we live in such a time now where like there there has to be like an argument from good faith must be made and like which we all agree upon like the same foundations and it's uh I it's nothing new to say that I'm baffled by people's reluctance to to do so um a, a lot of the one star reviews I I like to use uh, Goodreads in my own personal life, but also professionally, just to check out some of these one-star reviews. And there's none of them that were so good. I wanted to read them, but they all they all criticize these basic foundations that he was speaking from. And if you can't do that, then obviously the rest of the book is going to be like it, it's good for nothing for you. Um, but they didn't bring up any good counter arguments. I'd, I'd be curious it, how deep your dive was on some of these. Um, like alternative platforms that you found talking about this book. It wasn't that deep. It really yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's so hard for me to, to see anybody criticizing his view of America. I could see it, someone saying it's an alternative f- like form of storytelling, but I mean, the, the facts are all there. Right. Because he he continually makes the point that uh, the the sleeping white folk, the dreamers who still believe in this American dream, is f- uh, fundamentally based on like looting and pillaging of black bodies in particular. But um, certainly, other minority groups are also uh, have been victim to to America's imperialistic um, march march to the top. And yeah, I don't know. I guess. This is much more than just the book we're talking about, but I guess I'm continually flabbergasted uh, by this like reluctance to even admit that and move forward, and especially by people who claim to want to be doing good or or see change. Well, because uh, there's there's a part in there that I forgot, and that was a lot. That was like a sticking point in a lot of people's critiques. Is uh, and I don't I don't have the passage in front of me, but he talks about nine eleven. If y'all remember that part. Oh, we, and he he talks yes, he talks at one point um, about when he thought of the first responders going into the tower, he felt nothing for them, and in fact, he didn't even think of them as human because he couldn't help but reflect on his past experiences with um, the civil servants of like an, an authority and, and stuff like that, and that that still for him reached out to the first responders of nine eleven. I mean, that's how that's how deep his resentment and anger went. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting, interesting take. Cause again, what we talk or what I said before at the top of the show, like uh, critiquing his ideas to me is hard to do because what he's telling in this story is an incredibly personal one. You know, he just like kind of lays his soul bare and tells the story of his life and, and uh, explains why he has these thoughts. And so I can't see anything but like a need to reflect on them. I'm not going to like pinpoint why he shouldn't think of first responders as subhuman, but it's interesting. That's really imp- the road that he laid for us to get to that point to empathize with that idea. Well, I think he recognizes that anger and resentment too. Like he includes that. Um, and I noticed it in different parts of the letter, like him trying to hand the torch off to his son and like hoping for something better for his son, right? Like recognizing that as a father, 
he had to be taught by his wife, by the mother, like how to be loving because he was raised in a house household that was very much was it spare the rods, spoil the child. I was fucked yeah. up. Yeah, no, that's um, right. Well, and I wanted to bring this up. Like, it's an interesting and sad dynamic of like what happens in a culture of desperation, like, uh, and fear, right? Fear is a big thing in here. Uh, he talks about like having a third of his brain space taken up as a kid, just like walk into school and trying to do it in a tactical way so that he wasn't getting into trouble with somebody in a gang. He wasn't attracting, um, attention from the police and, but so fear is everywhere and the parents try to prepare the kids for the horrible world. You know, like there's a thing about how, like if, if a kid got in trouble, then his mama would beat him back to life mm-hmm. <laughs> was one of the things he mentioned. Like, so the violence is very deep and it's enacted on, on black people and, and brown people in particular. But they end up exercising then violence on their kids too in order to like teach them. And he was trying to kind of break that cycle by learning to be a more loving father um, and more gentle. Um, But it seemed to me that part of that was recognizing this darkness and the resentment uh, as part of that hang up kind of as if to say like, man, I am hung up about this, but I have seen shit that you haven't seen. Right, he mentions too to his son that his son enjoys much more privilege than a lot yeah, of black and brown people. No, no, you said it right. I thought that was really interesting on whatever like uh, armchair psychologist I claim to be, um, but there's like a you know like a deeper level of tragedy to thinking about your own abuse you received as a child at the hands of the people that were sworn to like protect and love you no matter what. And then to incorporate it within a much larger system and structure while I can follow his logic and believe to some degree, that's probably what's happening. Uh, it's, it still is like heartbreaking to, for me to think of, I don't know, like trying to justify that sort of violence That 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 spoke to me on like a pretty like deep and dark level. You know, like rather than like recognizing that abuse that we all to some degree have like experienced in our lives, like head on, I don't know, like trying to trying to make it like fit into a larger narrative. Almost feels like you're not quite dealing with it. Was it out of a the intention of at least I mean, what's the intention behind it? Because the uh, anecdote I keep thinking about when I hear these stories, like a really hyperbolic example of this is in a beloved or beloved, Toni Morrison's beloved, where a, a slave woman mm-hmm. is running away from her slavers and she has her small child with her and they or about right before they capture them, she kills the child because she would rather have her child be dead than in the hands of these slave owners and is something similar, I think, going on here where at least they can be in control of their children, even if it is sort of a rippling effect of the violence inherent into the society structured to dominate these people. 
Right. And one in which, like, the, the cycle was ultimately broken. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and his partner had, like, a loving union, and, and as he talks about in the book, he was able to learn to deal with that sort of regression and that need to teach that lesson through alternative means, one being this book, to mm. his son. Um, so that cycle of violence, I, I think that gets, like, used too often sometimes because it certainly can be ended and and redirected in a different way cuz i think the the message at the end of at end of the day is still a powerful one in which it's it's this eternal yeah. burden right that that hangs over um every black and brown person's body in this country and i i guess yeah this book could be seen as a you know an attempt to break that cycle of you know violence instead of certainly um having that kind of relation to your children, right? This is more of a extending an olive branch, or at least you know, uh, trying to establish communication, communicating this fear, or or, or the, maybe just the reality of this experience in uh, a different way. Yeah, for sure. Right, because this um, book is also and I, I'm harsh sorry in a way that uh, guys, I'm, I'm I've got to go to work. Uh, can can I just give my close? I feel pretty bad about my participation this episode. Can, can I just give my closing thoughts really quick? Give us everything you of got. Course. All right, I don't have I don't have much as usual. Um, um, I, I'm really glad. Like, so we originally had planned to read Pale Fire, uh, right, by Nabokov. Um, oh yeah, we'll have and to then, do that. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would absolutely love to do that. That's a fantastic book. But I'm yeah, I'm really glad that um, we changed and read this not only because it's timely, but um, yeah, I'm not sure that on my own I would have. Um, I, I would have come across it. I mean, I hadn't heard about it before, and um, you know, I don't know if I'm just kind of live under a rock or whatever. But um, yeah, it a was big white rock. A big white rock, yes, a rock that feels itself to be white, uh, indeed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I, I just, uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, you know uh, being being exposed to new stuff like this because I'm not sure uh, if I would have run into this on my own. And um, yeah, I mean. Some of the best prose I've read in a very, very, very long time. So um, good. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, but God, I'm sorry, guys. Aside from that, I don't have much to say. Um, great pick. That's um, right. You killed it, B. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you guys have an awesome rest of your conversation. And um, yeah, let the folks know at home how uh, how good this was. Stay clean, Well, Danny. hell yeah, man. Stay Thanks what? Thanks for popping on. Have a good day at work. All right, yeah. Thanks, fellas. I will uh, see you, talk to you guys before long, eh? Okay, email yep, me your good. email me your recording. Excellent. All right, consider it emailed. Okay, love you. Love Bye you. Then. Bye, fellas. Just the three of us. Oh, now this feels the, so much lighter. Now the boys three. can talk. Just kidding. Now oh, the real finally. man can talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it feels gone. <laughs> what I wanted to bring up real quick, speaking on this this idea of, of violence in the book, because he does break the cycle, but something that I read uh, that definitely like shook me to my core because it's something that I like I hope to never have to do with Arlo. But uh, after the Michael Brown conviction, right, his son who runs into his room crying, you know, hides himself in his room and is crying. And Ta-Nehisi Coates writes that he walks in there and rather than comfort his son, he, he, he does the exact opposite. He basically says like, sit in this and feel this because 
like this is life in America, and this is this is what you will continue to feel for as long as you are like a black body within this white space. Um, and and again, bringing up my my own son, um, the idea of of having to do that is something that I just don't. I I I, I can't even imagine doing that. Um, I know, and so. I, I it, well, it's not violent. Uh, that level of of realism uh, can be seen as as harsh, to say the least. And it's a powerful piece in the book that sort of then also further prompts him to continue to write this letter. That was our Phil. Hi. He just go out the screen door. Yeah, I appreciate the pessimism. I I do. And I think that's maybe one of the strongest parts of this book is him saying, I don't have the goddamn answers and I don't know if we're going to have the answers yes. anytime soon. And I think it's, and I think just speaking to, like I said it once, I'll say it again. I really appreciate the Frankfurt school and their ability to be incredibly pessimistic about things and just forcing us to sit with that and making us think about it. And, you know, the solution is not going to be now, but we have to stew with it a little bit and then maybe something that can happen politically because of it. And I think that we're right. seeing that now. And um, I think these protests are just the anger. And that anger is, I would hope, forcing people to have to do something about so it. And like I hope sort it's not of in the opposite direction. You know, terrible uh, uh, retaliation. Yeah, just double down like, just and just say, oh, well, we let these protests right. going long enough we aren't going to allow protesting anymore and even then if even if that is what they did that might have a positive effect ultimately just by showing how latently fascist yeah. a lot of these political systems are uh if it comes to it i wanted to go back to the pessimism too of, right because um, she's the exact opposite of that the old black lady at the end who's fucking yeah. badass the pessimism dr jones Exact opposite of pessimistic. Well, yes and no. Uh, remember, she was not stoked about having a grandkid. Uh, like, express some fear right. and disapproval that her daughter had a kid. Uh, had a black kid. And, like, she's like, you know, it's fucking scary to be a black person in America. Yeah, it was her son, Prince... Prince Jones had died, right? In, uh, um, in, uh, at the yeah, Harvard, um, Harvard University where they went. Howard. 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 Yeah, we haven't talked about Howard. I wouldn't mind digging in a little bit more on the text and the narrative if we can, but just to finish, like, of course, her pessimism is so deeply rooted in that case. Like, she had kids and had a son... And did her best to raise him. She fucking went to school at became night while she was working during the day and um, became a doctor, right? Yeah. Um, and she was able to, like, buy her kids a, a car and take them to Europe and, like, yep. invest all this fucking energy. And for her to make it as a black woman, oh, like, just you lost know, Phil. there's He's something that that means. Um, and then for her to be able to give that to her kids and then to have her kid just taken away from her all of a sudden like i think he set up the story in a really beautiful sad way putting that at the end and just kind of letting 
her speak about it. Um, there's a nice aspect of like including an old feminine voice at the end. Um, and I guess that all right. So I just monologued for a little bit. I th- hopefully that'll work. I was trying to fill dead air. <laughs> yeah. Might have to cut <laughs> out Cooper because that audio will have both of you guys talking. Well, the funny thing is the dead. Totally, but yeah, I'm recording, right, right. so it won't be dead. It's air. hard to it's hard to have a conversation that way. Now you just be won't busier. have heard it. <laughs> but just could just cut out that part. No, no, yeah. you just do your monologue now because <laughs> oh, yeah, we're we're yeah, all yeah, just yeah, coming yeah. up I with forgot, our forgot, monologues while each other is yeah, are yeah. monologuing, right? Um. No, so what I took from that was that was sort of uh, a confrontation on his own pessimism was talking with Dr. Jones Um, because while she still spoke uh, her truth and the truth, I think, of many uh, older African-Americans who, I mean, she talks about being being raised in Jim Crow, Jim Crow era South, uh, and while she can still admit that the idea of her daughter having a son is 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 very upsetting to her. I mean, she r- sort of railed against his his entire thesis, which is like, well, this is all bad, right? And she's like, no, I, you know, I worked my ass off. I got where I'm at. You know, Prince Jones was like, by any stretch of the imagination, like grew up a- affluent, uh, had everything he wanted. In fact, she was upset that he went to Howard University. She wanted him to go to Princeton or or Harvard. Um, to continue on with this, uh, this idea of, you know, black excellence and, and striving and pushing forward. And, and she didn't see Howard as, as a way of that. She was afraid that it would just be further going back into this like black identity. And, uh, you know, she even says at one point that she forgives the officers that killed her son. I mean, she was a very Christian woman, um, which is another aspect of this book, right? Cause he, uh, firmly believes in, uh, what, what would he, what do you call it? Like a black atheism, um, yeah, big time. That's how he, how he was raised, right? Yes, yes. Very much, very much uh, anti-Christian, anti-religion. And so Dr. Jones kind of confronted him with that. And, and yeah, didn't she even say that she forgave forgave the justice system and, and the officers and whatnot? Because mm. that, that wouldn't bring her son back. Mm-hmm. Would be to do the opposite. Well, mm-hmm. he's so anti that mode of thinking. He saw firefighters in nine eleven as just extensions of a white supremacy. That's right. That's where that that comes from. Having to confront what Doctor Jones says. That's right. Yeah, they're pretty. Uh, that's like pretty radical polarities going on here, where one is yeah. apologize not apologizing but f- forgiving the people that killed your son and someone that's literally demonizing uh, personnel that are rescuing people that are still, you know, uniformed authority figures. Right. And it's, I, I wanted to, uh, I apologize for not being prepared because part of, part of his, uh, I think he referred to it as like re-education when he went, when he went to Howard, uh, which he refers to as the like Mecca, black Mecca. Mm-hmm. Um, is he just he starts reading all these brilliant um, black thinkers and he has this whole list of them and sort of in really beautiful ways like breaks down on like a really basic level their sort of ideologies and where they war with each other and where they disagree and agree with each other and it's like a really comprehensive list of of like radical black thinkers that I would love to like dive into. Yeah, that was really nice. 
I, I really like that too. I like went online and looked up a couple, more than a couple that I hadn't heard of, and just figured out like, oh, this yeah. this physicist, this famous physicist that was black that went to Howard. And it's it's such a beautiful. We'll have to see if we can't uh, put him in like the show notes that list because it, it's a really like it's it feels like a really important list of of names that sort of was his was his education like his re-education of, of well, his identity there's himself. a few instances yeah. of that yeah yeah and just an extension of that too all the lists of people that have died at the hands of police officers like yeah. that's like maybe something that's i mean I, I know i was talking we were talking phil and i were talking about uh, this book earlier today and um this idea of black mechanics that in the prose of like things because the the writing this this can be prob- problematic talking me, about black writing versus white writing can i can i jump in yeah please so i'm i'm interested because i was doing my audiobook thing with this book um and it's kind of sweet i ended you were up reading the audiobook for i this. read i just read the title on the audiobook app <laughs> <laughs> um no, but I, I did a double thing where I would listen to it in the car and then go back and read over it. Um, and it was cool, like, and yeah, I guess Jordan was kind of getting at some problematic aspects with black and white writing, but I think it's not too controversial to talk about, like, oral culture in this case. Um, and it seems like, sorry, I was just checking to make sure I didn't drop out. Um, well, so when I'm listening to it, it's funny because he he left in his like his real voice in a lot of ways. Like he doesn't have like an academic voice per se, or he's managed to make his academic voice, um, black kind of, uh, so like in the text, he will write the word. I asked Dr. Jones a question, but in the audio book, he says, I asked her a question. Um, cause he, he reads it himself. He reads it himself, which is cool too. Cause it's definitely like, Thinking about him reading that to his son out loud, too, is, like, emotional and heavy. Like, this book is so heavy and beautiful, but... um, So that was interesting to me, kind of the distinction where you could hear a difference in the spokenness of it and on the page. Like, he had maintained the phonetics of the streets for, for doing this, and, you know, for fucking Audible, he decided to just say how he normally says that word, which is axe. And I thought that was... Right. Interesting, and we could see that, right? Like, I think Jordan was heading this way, like, in the prose, too. There's, like, really nice uh, references to hip-hop songs, so we see, like, his influence from that. And he was kind of a a poet that way, and so would pull a lot from these kind of what we call street poets sometimes, right? Um, Yeah, he, he notes that that was sort of his first education was when he became, like, a... Um, a slam poet and would hang out in like the coffee shops and cafes where the other poets would hang out and he'd listen to the he'd listen to them talk uh, about their history and about his people's history and, and that's sort of where he formulated some of his first ideas yeah so even there there's kind of that's like an oral still tradition there. yeah mm-hmm. um, I think another talking about these lists this is what sort of reminded me about this black mechanics idea like like mechanics the pros, the you know, the devices, whatever, uh, for the lay people, uh, that he's listing off these names of other black figures that are important in the same way that in a rap song, you're always like mention, you're always like talking about your idols and other figures that are important to the development of like a rapper or like, uh, what's, or, um, 
collaborating with other people. Um, right. So I feel like a lot, all of these names that pop up and all of these like references, um, not only maybe in a, within a tradition, but also just like, hey, while I'm here, like you should like check out this person that you haven't heard of or like talk about this person that was killed by police that you might not have heard of as he like lists like, right. You know, what was it? Trayvon Martin was shot for wearing a hoodie and someone else was shot for playing music mm-hmm. too loud. And he just goes on. Uh, so so oh, there's another example. I'm just trying. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, I think that's all I've got for now. Yeah, I think. Oh, in the body. I'm trying to. And Whoa, what was that? Oh. F- and emphasizing the importance of the body. Um, sorry. I know. Well, you don't have a microphone, so it's just weird. Um, emphasizing the body. God, that is loud. Just the importance of the body in <laughs> black culture, I think, is a pretty important thing. Um, and I think it's that mm-hmm. kind of connection. But I'm, I'm trying to be careful here because these can just become stereotypes and I don't want to be guilty of that. So I, I'm saying all this uh, apprehensively, but I'm just trying to understand, like, how does this how is he making his book not just an extension of some monolithic white culture? Um, and I think by using these kinds of mechanics is a good way of expressing that personality and just making it personal, I think makes it more black, just like by virtue of him being black, by making it personal, that's going to come out naturally. And that's probably the most effective mechanic, I think, for making this into a black book. That's, that's a really fascinating thing. Uh, this, this, this is a black book, right? Like I'm sure he's, uh, glad that we read it. Um, I don't think he'd be upset that we read it, but this wasn't written for us. Yeah. I mean, besides the obvious fact that it was written for his son, but it it was sort of you you can I and I I'd, I'd, I'd be really curious to read more of his stuff because I think this might be. I know he's re- he wrote several articles before this and had like has a body of work before this like in essays and and like I said article form. But uh, this really is a like a, just a giant, just a giant stamp saying like I'm I'm here and and this is this is the story I'm telling, and um, yeah, it, it, it's it wasn't written for white America, per se, which is so ironic too because so many white Americans read this book <laughs> as a number one new. De- I was gonna yeah, say too, bestseller. yeah, including us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Again, I, I don't I don't think he'd be upset by that. No, um, not at all. But I think it is important. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's divisive to say that it's a black book. He 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 wrote a he wrote a black book. Fuck no. Yeah, I think it's it's black as in fuck, fact, dude. Like, hugely important. Yeah. Well, I just wonder. Like, I I can hear the the critiques, right? Like of my of like my older relatives be like, well, why, why is everybody so focused on race, race, race? Like what, what about the human race? You know, just that, mm. that dumb sort of cliche thing now to like erase somebody's cultural heritage and, and past, present and future. Um, I don't see anything wrong with being in, in placing it firmly within like black literature. Well, no, I think that that's where he that would hope to be. can read. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. 
he he achieved it in my in, oh in hell my, yeah uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, about to, I was about to like give him the pass but like well i think he achieved it good job he clearly did it well and i think it's important to say that he doesn't i don't think he really wants to talk about race because he even says if you guys have your books on wait did i already read this oh the, well, the quote i read earlier i'll read it i'll just read that first part um I'll read, yeah. I'll read the part before it a little bit, too. Uh, when I look back, I know that I was then getting the message from all over. By that time, my friends included a great number of people with ties to different worlds. Make the race proud. That's a quote the elders used to say. But by then, I knew that I wasn't so much bound to a biological race, in quotes, as to a group of people. And these people were not black because of any uniform color or any uniform physical feature. And... Like I said before, they were bound because they suffered under the weight of the dream. They were bound by all the beautiful things, all the language and mannerisms, et cetera, et cetera. So he doesn't really want to emphasize race, but he wants to emphasize what it is that people see that makes him inferior uh, in people's eyes. And it is race. So to not talk about race would be to just ignore the blatant fact of what makes these kinds of people get shot at incredibly disproportionate rates. Rates. Right. So how can you not talk? And, and imprisoned. And, and, and just and so many things. And just marginalized, I guess, is like the most broad way of saying it. But maybe that's too light of a word. Um, does somebody have a timestamp on where we're at? We're 11.45. We're about an hour in. Oh, sorry. Um, is it cool if we go like 15 minutes more, maybe? That's fine by me, yeah. Yes. It's a short Again, book. pretty sleepy. Okay. This is a short, it's a really short book. Yeah, it's like like 120 pages or so. Yeah, if you take out all the pictures. It's a quick read. All the pictures and stuff. There's lots of pictures. That's also oh, a nice yeah, part yeah. we can talk about is every 20 pages or so there's a picture. Yeah, uh, a snapshot from his life. Mm-hmm. Him and his son and him yeah. at school and... Um, no, this is a really beautiful, intimate book, and it's 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 really powerful to think that within this uh, intimacy, there he's placed so much uh, power into it. Uh, you would think that like there's an inherent power in writing or or speaking on intimacy, but I think that's like a trap that too many people will fall into. Is like, well, just because I made it personal means like it's powerful and and means something, but to then also um, to then also uh, write so uh, beautifully on such harsh things while still telling your own story is, I don't know, I, I, I'd, I'd hope to do it someday. I mean, it's definitely something I'd love to, to achieve beyond just like merely the art of sharing. You're, you're sharing and, and there's so much more in there too. Yeah, and I think he does, his metaphors are so nice. He has, yes. I remember he had yeah. one about being killed, like what was it? Something about being like discarded, like a a bum wine being thrown on the sidewalk, was just right. to me such a good metaphor of, you know, this. I don't know this thing that has like minimal value, but and it's just like discarded and it's just bloody and, and I mean, just little moments like that are just scattered all over the place and it's it is a real it's it sounds super lame but it's a it's a joy to read (laughs) god damn it yeah no i i i'm right there with you uh that's the title of this episode it's a joy to read (laughs) by 
uh, Dash <laughs> Jordan Finn. Dash Jordan Finn. <laughs> yeah, we, Master we of English. Yes. I'm, <laughs> a memoir for reading Tana. He quotes Between the World and Me. Um, But just to, I guess, briefly bring it back to the Cor- Cornell West article, because I, I, for me, it brings up this interesting question that constantly gets brought up, which is, and it, it happens a lot in in liberal and leftist circles, this sort of like infighting in this, like, well, you're, you're not progressive enough or you're not to where I'd like you to be. Um, like, I think there's something powerful in, in reading this book and, and taking its message now and then also being able to disagree with his stance on Barack Obama, right? Yeah. Like, or am I crazy? No, I think it's when you start comparing Malcolm X and Barack Obama's where people start getting mad. Yeah, that's again, that's a strange thing that I, I just do, won't agree with him on, but that doesn't like mean that I disagree with anything he has to say in this this particular book between the world and me. Yeah, I I think so. But I, that feels like I feel like that gets like brought up like that, that that's just like such a uh like a talking point or or a sticking point for a lot of people. Yeah, like I said, I I have some regret even giving that sending that to everybody i almost thought it was just a way to start a discussion and maybe make this a little bit more interesting if we had some stumbling blocks along the way and it sounds like it is galvanizing some kind of conversation the fact that we keep bringing it up so well it, it's it's such a it, it's such a uh interesting idea because essentially what cornell west is arguing about besides sort of calling out ta-nehisi coates apparent neoliberalism is intersectionality at the heart of it, right? Being with like class, this race sure. issue in America. What's that? With class especially. Does he talk about LGBTQ yes. stuff? He brings that up as well, yes. Like he again he's he's pretty much just being an intersectionalist and being like this fight is is much larger uh, than just black and white without that being an erasure of that history and that fact. I mean Cornel West is like a a very prominent uh, African-American uh, intellectual in America. So he, he's he's aware of it very much so, but he's arguing from a place of, to, in order to better all of our lives, we need to include all of us. And that means the brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ plus community and, and the, the working classes who are being taken advantage of in this capitalist society and, and women. And, and, and he brings up uh, transgenderism, right? He, he talks about in the article, transphobia is like a pretty large uh, problem in the African-American community and, and just addressing much more than just race. If we want to seek uh, like actual progress, which I think is true. Well, I mean, you agree with that obviously, but, it's just a matter of yeah, whether or not we should I, quibble to that extent. Right. Which I think we should. I don't, I don't agree with the quibbling. I agree with, <laughs> I, I think a Cornell West and a between the world and me should absolutely exist in the same space. Yeah. Personally, my fear is that this just becomes the central conversation and class is just successfully excluded from the conversation for, for generations. And I think, it's in the Democratic Party's vested interest to just talk about race and not class, as we saw in the primaries right. this right. this year. Uh, what that? I wonder why that is. Like, I it's weird to say, but <laughs> is is race more comfortable for people to talk about now than class? I think power structures are not threatened as much by letting race become included more than it's more in it's in the interests of the status quo to erase 
the color line than it is the class line. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. I, I can see that. I can see that, certainly. I was going to say, there's an interesting aspect here, right, of, like, making money that way. Like, and it's a cool thing. Like, I love rap and hip-hop and stuff, and I love just, like, gangster ass. Making money? I, well, no, I don't do that very much, but... Uh, oh, so that's me. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> Big Patreon guy over there. Hey, check out Cooper's Patreon. <laughs> that's at Cooper Malin on Instagram, y'all. How about that, oh, Cooper? Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. Thank you. Um, not a paid ad. Not paid. He didn't. But I'll I'll Venmo you. He after didn't pay this, me though. in four and a half <laughs> blowjobs. What? <laughs> What's the half? You just didn't get to finish. Or? No, it was just. I just didn't make eye contact. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what the fuck was I talking about? Oh no. Uh, um, making money. Class. Oh. Making money. So like, oh, you were in a gangster rap music. One of my favorite songs recently was called New Africa. <coughs> and it was about like <coughs> all the like rich black folks in America taking their money back to Africa and like building it up. Um, and I'm not sure quite why I bring that up, but <coughs> I guess it's like thinking of dr jones like she's somebody that did well with money and that was important like that gave her a real leg up raising kids and like having the job that she had in the hospital as a doctor like there was a question of if um white white parents where like she was moving into white neighborhoods and stuff like did white parents respect you or not and she said yes because i was a doctor um, right. So there's an important aspect where, like, under capitalism, if you can perform your job well and be a G with it or whatnot, <laughs> then, like, you can use that for leverage to, like, protect your people. Um, right. So class has a funny play that way, I guess. Oh, it, it means it all the time. I, I think I think something that resonated with me that Ta-Nehisi Coates did say about Barack Obama, because I, I tend to think of it more as a metaphor than actual truth, but he was incredibly galvanized by Obama's campaign in 2008, holy cow, uh, because he said it was like one of the first times in his life that some uh, that a black man who wasn't an athlete or entertainer uh, had garnered that much of America's attention. That's right. And I and I think that again like not just keeping it specific to Obama, but uh, in general um I think that's a like a a pretty uncomfortable thing to recognize that that is that is far more the you know the truth. Um you know there's this interesting idea that I've seen floated around and I've read some really interesting stuff on it that I mean there's already problems with the NCAA not paying their athletes, but it can also be viewed as like a form of modern slavery. And that all the money they're making off of predominantly um, uh, black athletes, because the most the most productive sports in these university systems are basketball and football, which have like a pretty high number of African Americans who play it. Like help facilitate and pay for the other more white um, sports, like lacrosse and swimming and diving. Like all of their funding that they get to do the lacrosse and cross country comes from the money that they make from uh, like their football program or their basketball program. Wow. 
And so that still very much is a problem. Well, and we see uh, it with the prisons, I mean, of course. Nobody's saying it's not. Yeah. Yes. Eight, I mean, even eight percent more so, of the right? world's more... population uh, in prison is black. What? I think oh he says gosh. in there. Well, I mean, just even looking at the Thirteenth Amendment, right? That uh, the one that did away with slavery, except for that little clause that said, "Unless you, you know, uh, so you can you can you you can use prison essentially as as an alternative to keeping someone against their will and making them work without paying them, right. like unless it's in the service of like a penal system." Yeah, the, the numbers are disproportionate in this country, and let alone the fact that we, like, imprison more people than any other country by, like, thousands of percent. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say, uh, I think that's where Coates finds his power and his way to kind of climb and, and influence things uh, is in study and in knowledge. Like, Jordan and I were mm. talking earlier about there's a line in there, um, maybe like a third of the way through. Um, he just says, I needed more books, period. And it's like a nice yes. transition yeah. into a new paragraph. Um, but this thing of just like he could not get enough of it once he got exposed at Howard and that beautiful black community there and all the knowledge and power there. He's like, I need more of this. And he was good at books and good at reading and good at, at words. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cool just thinking of how seriously he takes study, I guess. Like I, I like to think of myself as a student too. So I tend to respect people who, who'd kind of take a similar track. And so I, I resonated with him that way, but, um, I thought it was cool. Anyhow. Yeah. I, I've listened to interviews with him before and, and he does, he does credit his, uh, love of knowledge and his love for reading and uh, as, as a huge part of his success. You know, he, he, he is nothing if not a fucking hardworking dude that just persevered and, and read, and, and he, he's, he's brilliant. I, I would, even though I disagree with him on some stuff, we've already talked about some of the stuff, um, he's, he's brilliant, and he, he knows his shit. And that comes through even in something as simple as, like, this letter to his son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we read this one. I'm looking, I'll, I'm looking forward to the time that we can discuss um, Pale Fire for sure, but uh, I thank you guys for letting me indulge in my selfishness by picking this book. Yeah, Selfish Daddy. Selfish prick. <laughs> we like you to feel good, white, like Daddy. The white guilt. <laughs> Thank you. Milk toast. Um. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I don't good, know. Good do we just want to pick fit Pale Fire for next time, or do a different one? Whose pick is it? I don't know. Yeah. Is it Dan? Oh, good question. Let's just move. Start over. Okay. Let's toss. Let's toss some books in there. It, it's been long enough that and I think a lot of us have maybe been thinking about it. So let's just. Uh, Toss our next books in the uh, in the ring and and see which one sticks for all of us. Cool. I just want I just wanted to say I was I didn't know if who was next and I was just looking at some stuff to see what I would if I if I was gonna pick one and I was thinking of reading um, a number of uh, books about fascism in America just with this election oh, and the stuff that yeah. Trump's been saying and 
Um, two that you guys want to look at is uh, Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here about a populist uh, leader who beats FDR in 1936. And um, just basically, as soon as he rises to power, uses a um, paramilitary group to control the country and just spiral into fascism. And the other option was Philip Roth's The Plot Against America. And there was another nice. one, too. Oh, I love I've I've heard so many good things about that and we've we've read Philip Roth before and I, I love him. Me too. He's, he's such a good writer. Yeah. That that feels like a really I mean, good So is Lewis Sinclair, but <clears throat> Sinclair Sinclair Lewis. Is it it's Sinclair Lewis, right? Is it Lewis Sinclair? Maybe I did it Lewis with Sinclair. like I do it Lewis, comma Sinclair like I'm in the library. <laughs> <laughs> he's a college boy. <laughs> You're more academic. That's how much I love books. You are a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> I almost said the Dewey Decimal dot system of it, but I didn't want to get that nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for sparing us. Um, that's a point sixteen. I'm glad that we both went for it. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, yeah, I think unless do you guys have any more thoughts about this book or anything? I I I just closing thoughts for me. This is the second time I've read this book. It was actually recommended to me by a friend. Uh, and I read it, and I really enjoyed it. And I actually wrote one of my first waste essays with this book. Uh, oh. It was about um, about being a white person listening to rap music and like, oh yeah, blast blasting rap music in Brooklyn and like ghetto areas. That I, was your review of Damn. Oh, it was also about Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, because I remember like loving that album, but also so. blasting it and being a white guy. I, like stopped at a stoplight at like a black intersection and feeling like weird like whoa like is this okay and just writing about it and asking black people that i was subbing for uh, teaching and asking them what they thought and and i i use a lot of ta-nehisi coats coats uh as a source and uh, an experience so this is a great book um it's really good i think i like being critical of some of its points but i think it's a book that is incredibly topical and i really really wish that more white people would read this book and just sit with it and i think if they did uh, I think they would be a lot more empathetic to what this country is founded upon. Yeah. Full stop. I agree. Jordan. Hell yeah. You mentioned yes. subbing. Um, do you ever do any doming? Or Not when I'm teaching. Oh, yeah. Can you flip-flop like do that? You flip, are you a switch or you mostly just do sub stuff? Not when I'm, not when I'm teaching. Oh, not not with the children. <laughs> you're strictly subbing when you're teaching. <laughs> okay, um, my second thing, my second joke is um, Ruth Hardly Newer Ginsburg, which I'm God, pretty proud it's of. it's so good. Pretty it's good. so good. She's um, an American hero, dude. <laughs> she held on to her position for too long. Um, I... Really love this book. I loved all the um, black culture in it. It's cool, actually. Uh, I recently finished a book that my distant cousin wrote. He's dead, and I didn't know him, but he moved from Montana to New York in, like, the 1930s and wrote about um, a white big band, uh, jazz band, and he he did it really well, too, like, and he's a white dude, obviously, but... Um, writing from the perspective of a white jazz band, he's able to kind of get into some of these questions from the other perspective, like from a white perspective, I guess. Um, like 
they're playing black music, like jazz music. Uh, and there's kind of a push and pull and an exchange between like black bands and white bands in the book. Um, so anyway, yeah, I really enjoyed like kind of the crossover between like what I was reading by somebody in my own family who wrote about kind of them going to New York and seeing some stuff from a white perspective and then reading this book, which is much, much better. Um, (laughs) but yeah, anyway, uh, super strong, like prose. I didn't know that he was a poet, but you can totally tell that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot more people would be a lot better off if we paid more attention to this kind of art. So I'm really happy that we read it too. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Hell yeah. This was great. Do you have parting thoughts, Cooper, this. or did you already have yours? Oh yeah. I, I, I don't know. You can parse through it. I've, I've given plenty of my thoughts. It, it's phenomenal. I hope to read more. I can't recommend highly enough uh, his Black Panther series he did with Marvel. Um, yeah, I don't he know. Just wrote, it's, he just—it's great. He just wrote a novel, also. But go ahead. Oh, he did. He I was just going to say novel. I was almost going to pick that one over this one. Just a nice. shout out for anyone interested. His debut novel. Get some fiction. Oh, oh, it is his debut. Yeah. Yep. Nice. Uh. I was just going to say something about Cooper being a dad and just getting to read about dad stuff. I so. love it. I love it. Yeah. I'm a dad. More dad books. I- I'm a d- <laughs> <laughs> Hey, say I'm a dad. It. Loud and proud. <laughs> I love it. We've got a resident dad in the house. <laughs> President we'll dad to you. <laughs> That's Mr. Dad to you. Mr. Dad. <laughs> Whatever happened to them? I don't Didn't know, they all over D that, in a tragic uh, train accident? I no, wish. I miss that band. God, COVID so took much. another one too early. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> all right. On that note. Yeah. Don't, we're uh, off the we're into our own wash classic sign-off. Yeah, wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Stay safe. <laughs> Stay s- in this In this new normal... We all have to cooperate. Now more than ever. Now more than ever. That's the one. Was that your guys' <laughs> Anthony Fauci impression? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just riffing. I don't know about this guy. God, no, I'm just yeah. riffing too, bro. Me too. Me too, me too, hell me too. Yeah. Me too, me too. <laughs> what? Dibs. Hashtag? Oh. Dibs. <laughs> what? All right. Let's, all right. Let's dip this in the butt. Okay. Bye. Well, let's Love do a classic waste sign off. We don't have to hang up. We go. We're gonna stop recording. Wasted. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Wink. Nice. Thanks for listening. Oh, give us a review on iTunes or something. Oh hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Fuck. Fuck.